For those of you who don't know me, my name's Drew. I, I, so I normally don't wear a polo shirt, but Jonathan Bunce told me to at the conference. And I was kind of afraid. He said it was like Polo Thursday or something like that. I see a few polos around. We got anybody else in polos? I just, it's just me and Bunce. That's it. But I was afraid he would beat me up. So maybe I shouldn't have, shouldn't have worn one, but I did. So guys, uh, tonight, I feel a little bit different about this message. I don't know if it's just something that God's been stirring in me, or it's that I went to the conference, or it's what's happening at the Asbury Revival, or what it is, but I'm just feeling a little bit different about this message. And this week, in preparation for this, I was listening to kind of a famous message that was given in 1995, way back in the day, at a Campus Crusade for Christ uh, staff conference. And basically, this woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss, who was approximately my age at the time, gave this talk called Pride Versus Brokenness. If you look it up online, it's worth watching just to see like her perm. She has a big old perm. But she goes through the whole Bible and basically shows us that the heart that God is drawn to is not a heart that is saying to God, I love you so much. I think you're so awesome. But that the heart that God is drawn to is a heart that is broken over sin. And what happened in that room after she gave that talk, there are about 6,000 staff people in the room, is it turned into people walking across the aisle and confessing sin to each other. And it turned to people getting on their knees and crying out to God and confessing their sin to him. And, and I know that no human being, like no talk can make that happen, but the Holy Spirit just fell on that place. And one of the things that she pointed out in the talk was she's contrasting the Old Testament characters of Saul and David. And she said that what's interesting is that from an outward perspective, David had far more notorious sin than Saul did. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And Saul, you kind of have to pick at his life to find really egregious sin Maybe the thing that he's most notorious for is his kind of half-hearted obedience to God. But the difference between the two of them was that David was broken and Saul wasn't. And so I want to invite us into the spirit of brokenness with the words of Jesus he gives us this promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I say it's a promise for all of us because I think that sometimes we can come into a room like this feeling like to be close to God, we have to bring it. 
What if you don't? What if it was the admission that we had nothing to bring that would invite God's presence to us in a unique way, maybe a way that we've never experienced him before or a way that we haven't experienced him in a long time. So we're going to see this reality unpacked in Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at the second half of it. And first of all, we're going to see what this kingdom, this kingdom is like. So I'm talking about the kingdom of this world. Hebrews 12, starting with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the writer of Hebrews is making a reference to Exodus chapters 19 and 20 here. And what happened at, in Exodus 19 and 20 is that God's presence came down on Mount Sinai. And the evidence that people could see was the mountain was covered with fire. And Moses told the people, Don't touch the mountain. In fact, don't even let your dog touch the mountain because if your dog touches the mountain, even it will die. And God calls Moses alone up onto the mountain and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses read the Ten Commandments to the people and their response was to tremble with fear and to beg God not to say anything else. Which reveals to us the true purpose of the law of God. Do you know that the law of God is not meant to be like a ladder that you climb to get to God? So you're not supposed to read the Ten Commandments like, do not commit adultery, and do not covet, and do not murder. And you're not supposed to kind of check those things off your list, and say, if I can get all of these rungs checked off, then I'll get to God. What you're supposed to hear when you hear the law of God is you're supposed to feel it like an anvil has been dropped from heaven onto your heart. It is supposed to crush you. Jesus summarized the law of God By saying that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Which of you today has paid as much attention to either God or your neighbor at the level of your heart as you have paid to yourself? Which of you, at any moment of your life, has with a pure heart loved God with everything that you are? Or think about it another way. 
if we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if at one moment of your life you didn't love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you never can because it's no longer all. It's only part. Because love, like so many other things in our lives, is cumulative. But so many of us treat the law of God like it's something that we can do. We can't do it. And so this kingdom, meaning this world, the place that we live right now is vividly illustrated in this passage. Because we have broken the law of God in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, and with our strength, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed God's law. We are guilty before him. There is a great chasm fixed between us and God. He is on top of the mountain. The mountain is on fire, and we cannot come near him. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Only the person with clean hands and a pure heart. And which of us has clean hands? Which of us has a pure heart? And so we are broken and the world is broken that we are part of because we are separated from God. And there is nothing that we can do to get ourselves back. No amount of lifting your hands or Bible reading or church attendance or tears of repentance can repair the breach between you and God. And whose fault is it? It's mine. It's yours. God has been the perfect father to us. He's provided us with our life and breath and everything else. And we are like the rebellious son who took his father's money, got a plane ticket, and flew across the world to do whatever we wanted. And then once he got there, had no money to get back to his father, but wished that he could. That's our situation. The kingdom of this world is broken Because we are separated from God. The second thing we see in this passage is a contrast. We see what the kingdom of this world is like, but then secondly, we see what God's kingdom is like. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But... We're not part of that old kingdom anymore. But we've come to a better mountain. See, we're not standing as Christians at the base of Mount Sinai anymore, separated from God. 
we've come to Mount Zion. And here's the contrast. Mount Zion, there's a feast going on. Mount Zion, there's a city. It's filled with light. It's not just Moses who is on the top of Mount Zion. It's Moses, but he's got a whole lot of other people there with him. And the living God is there. And there's not fire and smoke. There is a celebration. There's a meal. There's a feast going on. And we, on Mount Zion, are not sinners anymore. We have been made righteous. What happened? What's the difference? There's an entirely new covenant that we are now a part of. And the covenant is completely based not on what we have done, but based on what Jesus has done for us. The difference between the people at the base of the mountain who are afraid to touch it and think themselves unworthy to go into the presence of God and those rejoicing on Mount Zion is not that one group of people is bad and the other group of people is good. It's that one group of people is bad and recognizes it and has run to Jesus and the other group of people is bad but has hunkered down in their self-righteousness and said, I don't want what you have to offer, Jesus. And Jesus is saying to us, he is pleading with us, let me sprinkle you with my blood. Why? Because the wages of our sin is death. If even a beast touches the mountain, it dies. If you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, the only way up is up Mount Sinai. But God doesn't require us to climb that mountain. He sent Jesus to climb it for us instead. And Jesus climbed up that mountain and he died in the consuming fire of God. He took on the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf and paid the penalty for our sin. And in so doing, he bled to death on our behalf. And so we are welcomed to a feast. And he got the cross. But death couldn't hold him. And so he's alive. He's not dead anymore. He rose from death. And he's in this room. And he's calling this generation, as he's called every generation prior, to himself. So how do we get in on his kingdom? How do we stop living in brokenness in our relationship with God? And how are we brought near? How do we ascend the hill of the Lord? How do we come near and be with Jesus? Here's how. We're going to see. In the last part of Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29, how to live in God's kingdom. It says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, 
Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See that you do not resist the one who is speaking. The one who is speaking is King Jesus. And he is saying, my blood is for those of you who will admit that you need it. My blood is for the brokenhearted. My blood is for the poor in spirit. My blood is for those who know that they are guilty. My blood is for those who have stopped looking at the people around them and judging them and instead have looked at themselves and have said, I'm unworthy. I'm undone by what I have done. Not by what people out there in the world have done, by what I have done. See, it doesn't say, make sure that your roommate doesn't refuse him who's speaking. It doesn't say, make sure that your family does not refuse him who is speaking. It says, make sure that you don't refuse him who is speaking. It is possible to have once been broken as a Christian and return to a place of pride. To say with your words, I worship Jesus, I love Jesus, I need Jesus, and to say with your actions and your attitudes that you no longer need him. And the book of Hebrews was written so that Christians would endure in a position of brokenness. Do you know what characterizes the life of a Christian is that although there are times of pride, that we continue to take ourselves back to the foot of the cross, that we come back to a place of brokenness, that we are uncomfortable living in a self-righteous posture toward the world, and we are only comfortable in our need and desperation for Jesus. See, revival only happens when Christians stop looking at everybody else. And we start looking at ourselves. And we say, I need Jesus. I'm broken. I'm separated from God. 
I'm sad about what I've done. I hate my own actions and my own attitudes. You know what? My guess is a lot of us resonate with this. We feel this. But, but we feel like we can't just say it. Because we got this idea about Christianity that probably comes more from like cultural Christianity. That's actually from the Bible. That we've got to kind of clean up ourselves and then present that cleaned up version of ourselves before God and before others so that we can be acceptable. But here's what Jesus says again in this passage. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Do you know what I picture here? We understand that we cannot walk into the fire of God's presence without protection. We understand that each day and each week of our lives, we are completely unworthy to come into this room and raise our hands to King Jesus apart from his blood. And so we stand with reverence and awe of him, but we do not stand in our own pride. We confess. We feel our unworthiness. I think this is a picture that I got. It's like we're drowning in the middle of a sea of our sin and inadequacy. And some of us think that Christianity is like, it's a swimming contest. Like, who can swim the fastest? So we're drowning, but we're like flailing around, like trying to stay afloat. Like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Like, we're like a duck. Like, the feet under the water are going absolutely crazy, but we're trying to act like I'm not drowning, I'm good. And then other of us have just given up, kind of in despair internally. We're, we're honestly thinking, like, I got to bail on this Christianity thing because I get in the impression that everyone else is a lot better than I am. And I come week after week, I know I'm jacked up, kind of afraid to admit it, so I'm just going to bail on this whole thing. I don't think I'm good enough to be a Christian. Here's what I think receiving Jesus looks like for all of us, whether we've received him before or we've never received him. Help. That makes all the sense in the world when you're drowning and you can't swim, right? Help. It's just help. Over and over and over again throughout our lives. The only thing that would keep us from this life where we receive the kingdom of God as poor in spirit, as broken and contrite in heart, is our pride. At the end of Nancy Ludemasa's talk, I think she lists around 30 things that characterize a proud person versus a broken person. And I just took out some of the ones that were most convicting to me. And I want to read some of those to you. She said, Proud people focus on the failure of others and point out those faults. Broken people are more conscious of their own spiritual need 
than of anyone else's. Proud people are self-righteous. They think highly of themselves and look down on others. Broken people think the best of others. They see others as better. Proud people are self-protective of their time, their rights, and their reputation. Broken people are self-denying and self-sacrificing. Proud people get wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. Broken people are eager for others to get the credit, and they rejoice when others are lifted up. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how very much they have to learn. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit their failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't you want to be part of that celebration? Part of that feast? Don't you want back into that life-giving relationship that you once had with Jesus? Maybe it was when you first believed. And you know that what's standing between you and that is just your pride. It's just your unwillingness to say, yep, that's it. You know why I think that message so hit that crowd that Nancy Lee DeMoss was speaking to? Because it was a bunch of pastors. You know, some of the most proud people are guys like me. You know what I've been thinking about as a result of studying this text? It's just how much I hide behind this. This. Instead of being broken by this Bible, I stand behind it. I'm a pastor. Kind of offers a little bit of protection, which is incredibly dangerous. And the thing that I'm broken by right now is my own pride and my own self-righteousness. And I want to come back to Jesus with you guys right now. So let's invite him. Jesus, we invite you to reveal our sin to us. Not because we want the pile on, not because we want to feel guilt and shame, but because we want to be broken enough to need you again. I thank you that there's hard passages like this in the Bible. that remind us of the great consuming fire that you are, God, and yet at the same time inviting, kind, gracious, generous. Would you convict us so that you can heal us? Would you break us so that you can call us back and we can enjoy rejoicing in your kingdom once again? In Jesus' name.